Our subject for today is, it is written down as reincarnation or resurrection. I should have really called it the science of the resurrection. The science of the resurrection. Let me urge you, as our good chaplain said, bring, come back tonight if you can. For obvious reasons, all that I want to say, I cannot say in this session. I say more almost every evening session simply because I have more time. So if you can somehow make it, come in the evening as well. Because no two sermons are presented precisely the same way. So you'll be benefited twice. And of course, try to bring a friend with you. Let us now bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are God. We would not have anyone else to be God but you. We thank you for Christ and all that he means to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that directs, leads, convicts, and troubles our hearts. We thank you for the angels that protect us from dangers seen and unseen. And we thank you, Lord, for the comforting presence and the fellowship one with the other. As we embark upon a study of your word, I pray in the name of Jesus, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, that you would grant to us an enlarged understanding of your word and your will for our lives as individuals. Grant to your manservant the right words to say, I pray, please, in Jesus' name, amen. The science of the resurrection. In Genesis chapter 2, reading verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayst freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, death was something, a new concept, because no one had ever died. And here is God telling a man whose nature is sinless, and if he had remained sinless, could not possibly have died. God tells Adam, in the day thou eatest thereof, or God could have said, in the day you sin, to go contrary to God's word is to sin. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And I told you on a previous occasion, that death is the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death for any sin and all sin, regardless of the size or the degree of severity, all sin and any sin deserves death. Now let me comment on death briefly as we continue the science of the resurrection this death is not what people die every day. That is merely the consequence of sin. That is not the penalty of sin because there have been people who have died more than once. But the penalty for sin is executed once. So the death that we die, it is not the penalty for sin. It is merely the consequence of being born with a fallen nature, the consequence of being born from Adam. And so we're told in Romans 5 verse 12, For as by one man 
sin entered into the world and death by sin. There is death, that is the penalty for sin, and there is death, that is the consequence of sin, but all come as a result of sin. For instance, Lazarus died, John chapter 11, Jesus went to the grave, and Jesus raised him up. Then, of course, Lazarus died again. So here's a man who died twice, yet Jesus said that Lazarus would come forth at the last day, agreeing with his sister. Eutychus, that young man in Acts chapter 20, he fell from a window, he died, Paul raised him, of course he died again. The death we are referring to is what the Bible calls the second death. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, reading verses 7 and 8, the Bible says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and he shall be my son, and I will be his God. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 22, verse 14, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. In other words, from the second death, there is no return. Now I must lay this down very clearly. From the second death, there is no return. That is the death that God referred to in Genesis 2.17 when he said to Adam, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5. Let's read from verse 5. Well, let's read from verse 3. The Bible says, And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and he called his name Seth. And Adam lived after he had begotten Seth eight hundred years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Adam were nine hundred and thirty years. And what? He died. And Seth lived a hundred and five years, and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died, the Bible says. And Enos lived 90 years and begat Cainan. And Enos lived after he begat Cainan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. And this continues throughout Genesis Chapter 5, the longest man who ever lived as the Bible records it. Genesis 5 from verse 25, and Methuselah lived 187 years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 780 and 7 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. Finish it for me. And he died. This is the outworking of a part of what God said in Genesis 2.17, Thou shalt surely die. Because the first death is merely a semblance of the second death. Because it all comes from sin. And so the Bible is showing that however long they lived, death 
eventually caught up with them. Many of us, we run from God and we run from God and we try to put distance between us and God. But let me tell you with brotherly respect and preacherly firmness, however much you run from God, God eventually will catch up with you either with salvation or with judgment. You cannot outrun God's blessings and you cannot outrun his curse. You may live as long as Methuselah, 969 years. Death is like the tortoise. You may be a hare, a rabbit, and you're running in turbocharged speed. And death just takes its time because death is inevitable. And inevitability does not have to run. It just has to move. And so we have all this death in Genesis chapter 5. Let's go now. Remember now, these are the generations of Adam, according to Genesis 5.1. So all these people came from Adam. Adam, Seth, Enos, Cainan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Nine times they died. The only one who did not die was whom? Enoch. Now, of these ten patriarchs in Genesis 5, God inserts hope. Gospel hope. Because someone reading Genesis 5 may be depressed, discouraged by all these people who died. And he died. And he died. And he died. But glory be to God, when the person comes to verses 20 through 24, he comes across a man who does not die. This is God reminding humanity that the promise of a Savior is certain, even more certain than death. And so we go to Matthew chapter 1. As we continue the science of the resurrection, we've just encountered death, the threat of death. And in Matthew 1, the Bible says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the word death does not occur in Matthew 1. The Bible says, and Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and Zerah of Tamar. And Phares begat Hezron. And Hezron begat Ram. And Ram begat Aminadab. And Aminadab begat Nashon. And Nashon begat Salmon. And you read all the way down to verse 16. All you see is begat, 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 begat. In Genesis 5, we have he died, he died, he died. In Matthew 1, we have begat, begat, begat. We have death from Adam. We have life from Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. Life. In Christ, there is no death. And so now we go to 1 Corinthians 15. We've confronted the penalty for sin. We've seen evidence of that penalty working its way through the first genealogy of the seed of, Abraham, of, of Adam. We see life in the line of Jesus Christ. And now we come to 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul is addressing a crisis in the Corinthian church. There was this belief that there is no resurrection. And Paul understands the seriousness of this claim. 1 Corinthians 15, reading from verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Now what was it he received? Verse 1 tells us, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel 
Verse 2 begins by saying, by which ye are saved. This is the gospel Paul is talking about. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now Paul is drawing from two streams. The stream of prophecy and the stream of history. Where is the prophecy? Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Meaning, the Bible had predicted that Jesus Christ would die for our sins. He goes on to say in verse 4, And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul is appealing to prophecy to add power to his message. Prophecy tells us what will happen. Prophecy does not tell us that it happened. Let me say that again. Prophecy, to which Paul appeals when he said, according to the scriptures, prophecy tells us what will happen. But prophecy does not tell us that it did happen. For that, we depend on history. So that history and prophecy are inseparably linked in the grand scheme of God's plan for us. So Paul says, according to the scriptures, appealing to prophecy. But now, Jesus Christ, according to Paul, has risen from the grave. Paul said it because prophecy said it. Now Paul has to refer to history to establish the fact that what was prophesied actually happened. And so he says in verse 5, And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the, the disciples, the twelve. After that, he was seen of above what? Five hundred brethren at once. Now this is critical. At once. The resurrection is the most verifiable event in the scheme of salvation. Are you listening to me? It is easier to prove the resurrection than to prove the birth of Jesus Christ. Using scripture. Because the resurrection is that critical. And so Paul says that he was seen, after that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me, as of one born out of time. Now what is Paul doing? Now he has already appealed to prophecy, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, but now how does he verify the historical event occurred? Paul calls on witnesses. Now you've all written, written term papers, research papers, you've written those things. What do you have at the bottom of your page? Or perhaps clustered at the end of your paper? What do you have? References. That's the, you see, you just can't write a paper and say, this happened. Not if you want your professor, even the Christian professor Loma Linda, to accept it, he or she will not. That person, as an evidence of scholarship, you must have references. 
You must have footnotes. Where did you get this information? Who else corroborates what you are saying? What research has been done in the past to support your present claim? There must be witnesses. And Paul, seeking to establish the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. How many witnesses do we have there? Thirteen. Then he said, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once. At once. Now, what is the importance of at once? This is it. Of whom the greater part remain to this present, the verse goes on to say. Paul is aware that as he is writing this letter, there are people alive who can say, this did not happen or this happened. He knows he is submitting what he's writing to serious challenge. But he knows what he's writing is true. And so he lets his readers know there are Living footnotes that can verify the claim that I make. That Jesus rose and most of the 500 are still alive today. Now the reason that at once is important, you see, if Jesus had appeared to them individually, one could have said it happened this way, the other could have said it happened that way. But since Jesus appeared to the 500 at the same time, one can check the other. And Paul knows that. It is essential that Paul presents a historical account so that even the unbeliever, even the Roman, even the pagan, even the Gentile with no interest in God can look at this report, look at the references, look at the witnesses, look at the two-legged footnotes and say, yes, this happened. So we have Cephas, the 12, 13, most of the 500 still alive, let's say 450. That's 463. Then James, 464. Then all the apostles, however many there were. Let's round it off, 500. Then Paul himself. All witnesses to this central event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is Paul doing this? Because Paul knows, according to verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ... Be not risen, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. And in verse 15 he says, we are false witnesses because we have testified of God that he raised Christ, which he did not, if it so be that the dead rise not. Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, we are liars, we have misrepresented God. What we said God did, he did not do. The resurrection... From the dead, the science of the resurrection. Now, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, it is not so much that Paul is saying the resurrection is important, which he is saying someone else had previously told Paul the resurrection was important. Now, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. If there is no resurrection, the gospel falls like a house of cards. Where did Paul get the gospel? Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, reading from verse 6. 
As we continue the science of the resurrection, Galatians 1, reading from verse 6, it's 36 minutes to 1. I'll let you out at 10 minutes to 1. Forgive me for not telling you up front. I hope you weren't nervous. We shall release you at 10 minutes to 1. That is guaranteed. I marvel, first, first, uh, Galatians 1, 6, I marvel that he is so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Listen to the seriousness of Paul's word in verses 8 and 9. For though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be a curse. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that he have received, let him be accursed. For do I persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now he says, for I certify you, brethren, certify that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying, he was instructed in the gospel directly by Jesus Christ. There is another man who has a similar, had a similar experience, Abraham. We're told in Galatians chapter 3 verse 8, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. God preached the gospel directly to Abraham. God preached the gospel directly to Paul. And in the preaching of the gospel, which Jesus did, Jesus emphasized the centrality of the resurrection in the entire plan of salvation. No resurrection, no salvation. And so Paul is at pains. The entire chapter, all 58 verses of that long chapter, is dedicated to proving that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Now, I said earlier, there are two deaths. The first death, which is the consequence of sin. So if I cross the street and an irresponsible driver hits me and breaks both of my legs, that's a consequence of sin. My legs weren't broken because I committed a sin necessarily. It's just a consequence of sin. The Bible says, in this world, you shall have what? Tribulations. Even though you're as close to God as Enoch was, in this world, you shall have tribulation. So every unfortunate circumstance doesn't mean that God has left you or me. But these are consequences of sin. The rain comes, you are soaked, you catch a cold. That's a consequence of sin. The penalty of sin, that death, as I said earlier, there is no return. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death that Jesus Christ died at 33 and a half years old, was not the consequence of sin. Are you listening to me? Jesus' death was... The penalty for sin. In other words, he died the second death. That death from which there is no return. I can already see the question you're asking. Something doesn't make sense, preacher. How is there a resurrection if the dead person died a death from which there is no return? This is the power of of the resurrection itself. Come on, say amen. 
When you understand the power of the resurrection and how it can work in our lives now. Jesus Christ, he died the second death. That's why we're told in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Did you hear that? There are people running around sinning endlessly, couldn't care two hoots about Jesus Christ, not knowing that Jesus Christ tasted death for them. And they need not suffer the second death at the end of the thousand years. He tasted death for every man. Jesus died your second death. Gratitude should cause you to say something a little louder. I, when I preach where people suffer, I get loud amens. I'm serious. Where people have it hard and don't know where the next meal is coming from, I get amens that lift the roof. You come to Loma Linda where everyone is a millionaire and people sit and watch you as though you are descended from an iceberg. I tell you, but I appreciate the few amens I'm getting. You have to be grateful for small mercies. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That power that cannot be described. That mysterious return from which there is no return. And in the process, he conquered death. He conquered the hell. He conquered the grave. He conquered everything associated with sin, with death, and with the devil. It was a thorough, a complete, a resounding victory when Jesus came back from that which no one is supposed to return. And he rose in power. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now Paul is speaking not only of the literal resurrection of the, the righteous at the end of the world, he is also referring to that resurrection symbolized by baptism when someone is born again and rises to walk in newness of life. Now follow me closely. What is this newness of life that Paul is talking about? Now, he associates this newness of life with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, please follow me closely. 43 minutes to 1. I have a few minutes left. Let me express it this way. You must come back tonight. The life, notice I said the life, not the body. Did you hear me? The life with which Jesus came from the grave is the life that must sustain us today. Did Jesus come up victorious over the sinful nature? Yes or no? Yes. Did he come up victorious over death? Yes or no? Yes. Did he come up victorious over the grave? Yes or no? Yes. Then, by faith, we claim this life. 
The characters we, God desires of us is the character Jesus worked out before he died. And the power to live that character is the power that's available after he died. The resurrected life is the life we must live. Meaning this. As you and I sit where we sit and stand where we stand, the life God requires of us is the life that people live in heaven right now. You know the human beings in heaven now. Name a few of them quickly. Moses, name another one. Enoch, name another one. Elijah. And there are 24 what? Elders and perhaps many more who were resurrected at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he took them, he led captivity captive. There are human beings in heaven now. The lives they are living up there. Is the life God requires of the saved person down here. And we live it by faith in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. That victorious life. Which means that long before we set foot in heaven, we must already be living as though we live in heaven. And the power to live that life, I say, is the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. This is the life you receive when you receive Jesus Christ. A life that gives victory over all the forces of darkness. That is why God accepts no excuse for any weakness in a person's life. None. That is why Christianity is not joining a church. It is having a relationship with the resurrected God. Because when you have Jesus, you've got that life. When you have him, you have victory over death, the hell, sin. That's why we're told in Hebrews 2.15, And Jesus delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. How did he do it? Through his death and resurrection. A Christian ought not to be afraid to die. Death is asleep. It's asleep. We should so live by the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. That people should say to us, you are an alien. You don't belong here. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 23? Ye are from beneath, I am from above. He said the same thing of the disciples. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. We live the not of this world life by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I am saying to us with four minutes left that what God requires of us by the available power, the power that Jesus used to come from the grave, to come back from the second death, what God requires of us is that we live now the way people live in heaven now. Someone said, if we can conceive it and believe it, we can what? Achieve it. Now, in the context of salvation, we have to say, if we can conceive it, and it's in God's word, and believe it, by the grace of God, we can achieve it. This is what God desires of us. Do you not understand and do I not understand if we live that life, how quickly the world would see a reflection of Christ-likeness. My favorite writer says, 
as soon as the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people. What does perfectly reproduced mean? No flaws. So soon will Jesus Christ return. As soon as his character is perfectly reproduced, for that character to be reproduced, even though we have the sinful nature, we need the very power of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And that power comes not by reading vows to a church. It comes by accepting and receiving, and pardon the expression, personalizing Jesus Christ. How many of you will say, I have to make this call, time is up, you have to come back tonight? How many will say, Jesus, this sounds impossible, but the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. Help me to believe that the life you lived, the power that brought you from the grave is available to me today to live a victorious life. If you will say that, can I see your right hand? The power is available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Not in me or my church, but in Jesus Christ. Hands down, heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Wishing I had more time, but I will have it tonight. But Lord, for now, I ask you to impress upon the minds of those who attended the sobering reality. Father, the resounding truth that the power of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ is precisely the power available to us today to live victorious lives so that we spiritually can be victorious over death, even the second death. And that the lives we live now must be perfect reflections of the lives that are lived in heaven right now. Lord, hear this prayer. Grant us your spirit. Increase our faith. Save us when you come, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, let all God's people say, Amen.